Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, you know, this is a third, our third COVID winter, effectively, and I think that we are all living with some new tasks and some old tasks, maybe some new paranoias. I was just chatting with uh, one of my studio mates at uh, the art studio who was telling me about her recent trip to Japan, where essentially everybody wears a mask anyway. And of course, they have been for many years. Whenever I would go through an airport for the last 20 years, if anybody was wearing a mask, it would be a person with epicanthic folds. That's because... Well, I guess they just have figured out that it's rude to give other people viruses. And uh, recently, I was at a museum exhibit over the weekend, and the fairly crowded exhibit and the number of people not wearing masks was by far an advantage, a majority of the people that were. And, you know, I have to stop and think about the last the flu of or the flu that really didn't happen in 2020 and the flu that really didn't happen in 2021 and yeah it was probably because we still had mask mandates and the flu just didn't get any traction so we're going to start off just reminding you about this thing called the germ theory of disease and uh first of all Let's uh, talk about a recent study. This was published at the Daily Mail in England, where self-check at the supermarket is now a thing. So, um, yeah, this in this study, they went around and swabbed 19 items that people typically touch on an everyday basis, like handrails, door handles, keyboards. Guess who won the? Who guess who won for the highest number of bacterial loads? This surprised me. It was the checkout screens at the supermarket. Researchers found uh, uh, typically five different kinds of uh, bugs, bacteria, uh, four bacteria, and one uh, fungus, all known to cause diseases. That they found enterococcus, which is normally found in human feces, E. coli, likely uh, also from human feces. Uh, both of these can cause gastroenteritis. Enter- enterococcus can actually cause a very nasty form of blood poisoning if it gets into your bloodstream. Uh, the type of blood poisoning that is like, oh, you know, 50% lethal if you get septic from it. Uh, you also had candida albicans, which can cause yeast infections. Uh, S, uh, Klebsiella, which uh, can def- is a gut, another gut bacteria and can definitely cause bladder infections as well as pneumonia on keyboards. So, yeah, bacteria are out there, and I'm noticing a lot of the keyboards I see say, do not swipe directly, I guess instructions, do not spray this, because if you spray it, you will damage the electronics. So, yeah, I, wanted, I want uh, you every single one of you, when you go through the supermarket checkout, if they don't have hand sanitizer, go ask the manager. Tell them that you want to see hand sanitizer after you've touched this object before you pick up your keys, before you go touch your wallet. You'd like to sanitize your hands so that you don't take those germs you picked up from the screen and bring them home to your newborn infant or your elderly Relative on chemotherapy. Thank you very much, Mr. Store Manager. I'll look forward to seeing those next time, possibly the last time I shop at your store. You know, they hear that more from more than a couple of people in the same week. I think we're going to see a little more diligence about making sure that hand sanitizer is right out there for us after we end up using this this very commonly touched object. You know what the number one was? First runner-up supermarket checkouts. For well, the, the first place went to elevator buttons, which should surprise no one. Uh, okay, so while we're still on colds and flus and what to do about them, uh, have you ever wondered why a mask is so helpful? I've heard that 
it's because you don't you're touch your face 20 times a minute and therefore if you've got a mask on you're not touching your nose or your face but there may actually be another reason one that's linked to why cold air tends to cause people to get more colds now we know that certain viruses replicate better at lower temperatures but also cold air itself damages the nose's immune response, or the rather, I should say, the nose's immune defense. You see, the mucous membranes in your nostrils produce billions of basic copies of cells, mucus cells. They're not really copies. They're called extracellular vesicles. They're little bubbles of cell membrane. And these bubbles of cell membrane contain on their surface the the receptors that the viruses are trained to attach to, like, for example, the uh, the ACE2 receptor, the angi- because that re- that receptor is actually uh, associated with inflammation, and it's what the COVID virus grabs onto, right? So, if you've got all these stealth, you know, basically decoy copies of cells floating around in your mucus, a lot of the viruses are going to mistakenly attach to these. But these don't have the reproductive apparatus inside them that allows the the virus to make more copies. So essentially, you've just created a, a decoy for the virus. That virus is now no longer going to be able to infect anything. And of course, when we blow our nose, we blow out these extracellular vesicles, and we blow out the attached viruses with them. Now, researchers have looked at this, and what they found is that when you reduce the temperature by as little as 9 degrees Fahrenheit from room temperature, you kill off about 42% of those extracellular vesicles. They just pop. And, of course, this reduces the number of uh, receptors, uh, so you have much less much many fewer decoys. So wearing a mask actually doesn't just work because you don't touch your face. It actually works because it keeps your nose warmer and helps preserve those extracellular vesicles, which are in there in the first place. So isn't that interesting? And isn't that a good reason to, first of all, make sure your supermarket has hand sanitizer. And second of all, wear a mask when it's cold. And I have to admit, I tend to get chilly and I have really enjoyed uh, wearing a mask or rather having wearing a mask not being weird because, you know, people look at you weird, but now they don't. Now they just kind of, if they do anything, they sort of roll their eyes, but, you know, I can deal with an eye roll. So we're going to go to an interesting email we received from Jessica in Santa Cruz. And uh, Jessica writes, health Hazards from cast iron tub. Hi, Dr. Don. I recently learned that cast iron tubs often have porcelain enamel glazes which contain lead. I tested my tub at home and it is positive for lead. Online research suggests children should uh, not bathe uh, in tubs with leaded glaze as there is no safe blood level for children and the lead could be introduced through the nose and mouth. Could you speak to the risks for adults who regularly bathe in tubs with leaded glaze? Since adults are less likely to ingest bath water, are we still at risk for skin exposure? Well, first of all, Jessica, thank you very much for raising this issue. You know, I've always been aware of and have talked to my patients about the risk of lead dust, of uh, the old of houses built before 1974 when lead was in most of the paints and how when you drill a hole in the wall or otherwise renovate, you're going to potentially release lead dust. Or if you have chipping paint, that's going to turn into lead dust that can be inhaled. And inhalation is the most usual form of getting inorganic lead in your body. And of course, we have Uh, occupational health and safety regulations for people who work with lead. But it is true. It's hard to say that any lead at all is safe. And given that when we evolved, us humans, that is, most of the lead in the, most of the lead wasn't (laughs) in the environment. It was buried in the earth and we, we really weren't exposed to much lead. So 
it's not too surprising that it might have toxicity at fairly low doses because we wouldn't have had an opportunity to need to evolve a good detoxification system. Now, we do have a detoxification system, but nevertheless, the idea that lead is brain toxic, and especially so in children, is, I think, well-established. And the current lead levels have been, well, basically lowered at least uh, half a dozen times during the duration of my career, and I suspect will be lowered again once we can figure out the political implications of lowering below what is actually achievable in 50% of the uh, United States. And that, of course, is the rub. We have built an environment that contains lead. And do we really want to establish a safe level that we cannot achieve? Like I said, that's as much a political issue as it is a scientific one. But for many, many years, and I went back and I found an article in JAMA in 1930, from 1932, it basically said, yes, Lead can be absorbed through the skin, which relates to uh, our emailer Jessica's question, uh, but it's just the organic or organified forms of lead, and, and this is true of particularly, let's say, of mercury, so it seemed legitimate and reasonable. Of course, we now know that it's not entirely true because we have these microbiomes that are capable of organifying metals. And there's also been data starting in about the 90s looking at organic lead and showing that those can be absorbed through the skin, through the hair follicles and the sweat glands, and also just across the skin, but that that was slower. And they did a number of studies looking at uh, using radioactive isotope of lead and looking at uh, absorption because they could track it in to the skin, and they were able to show it mainly uh, didn't stay in the bloodstream. It mainly came out in sweat and urine, which is useful because uh, sweat and urine are things that we can produce in abundance with adequate hydration. And when I have people who have high metal levels in their systems, uh, perhaps they have a neuropathy or they have uh, something that looks characteristic uh, in terms of their occupational exposure. You know, I'll, I'll run those tests, and if I see that they're high, I'll definitely put them on a program of regular sweats because that's an excellent way to get rid of lead. But what else can you do in the situation of a lead bathtub? Well, an older porcelain enamel bathtub, um, the top coating is baked on at a very high temperature onto the bathtubs and the sinks, so those cast iron tubs have a surface thing. The Older enamels did contain lead. Now, if you have a enamel cookware, like, you know, those uh, expensive uh, Dutch ovens, that's not going to leach lead into your food. But your bathtub, on the other hand, and maybe an old sink in a Victorian where you live, has been cleaned and scoured with cleanser thousands of times over the years. And it's the regular scratching that erodes the surface of the porcelain enamel and leads to, in fact, a positive lead test. Uh, I believe that uh, Jessica said she tested her tub at home and it was positive. I'm sure she used one of those hardware store lead swabs. So one concern that I would have for Jessica is the tiles in that bathroom, because if you've got the old tub what about the tiles? The tiles are going to be subject to a lot more friction. And in fact, in houses where they're looking at lead abatement, they focus on the tiles and not on the sink. However, uh, I think let's assume that the floor has been resurfaced for the sake of our discussion and talk about resurfacing. You can resurface a porcelain tub and for an adult, uh, I'm not sure how important it is. Certainly, if you have children in the household, uh, that would be something to really look into. You do have to do it properly. There are companies that will do it for you. If you decide to do it on your own, you'll want to read uh, the health and safety things, use a respirator, et cetera, et cetera. Not because you're going to get lead, but because some of the uh, off-gassing compounds from the resurfacing chemicals are fairly significant in terms of their own health impacts. Resurfacing the tub is an option. 
Uh, certainly, adults are much less likely to in, to drink the tub water. But uh, if you, I, I sort of am thinking about the kind of, oh, I've got something between my teeth. I reach up with my wet hand and uh, scrape it out with my fingernail. Oh, my God, I've just put lead-contaminated water, you know, and steam maybe could lift some particles. Probably not a significant risk for an adult. But when you clean that thing, I think I'd wear an N95 or a KN95 mask because that's when you're going to get maybe some dust particles uh, coming up. So resurfacing to me sounds like a wise idea if you've got an old tub that's cast iron that's testing positive. Now on last week's program, we were talking about nootropics and uh, things that could be beneficial for brain function, and I hope uh, that that, uh, you can go and review that if you like before listening to the rest of this. I had some additional articles that I wanted to talk about with reference to brain function and also uh, kind of a new way of thinking about Alzheimer's disease. And let's start with drugs and press releases and with all that that implies about how companies have multiple motivations for a press release, and one of which may be to just increase the stock price because they've got something that maybe will uh, hit big. In the case here, I want to tell you a little bit about a new drug. Um, There's is now a phase three study, so that pretty much means that they will be submitting a regulatory submission about this drug. Last week, we talked a little bit about the mm, underwhelming performance of the highly expensive recently released Alzheimer's drugs. And uh, Hydrogene, which is an old, generic, not nearly as expensive drug that has pretty decent, probably as good results uh, in terms of improving cognition, Uh, probably largely by improving cellular metabolism and improving circulation to the brain. But the compound we're going to talk about today has nothing to do with circulation or with amyloid beta, which has been the target for most of the Alzheimer's drugs that have been developed, including the two that were just uh, released and have such mm, dangerous side effects of brain bleeding and brain swelling. This drug is called hydromethylthionine, mesylate, and we're going to call it HMTM because I don't want to say that again. Uh, It is a potent inhibitor of the clumping of something called tau protein, which has also been implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And in this, and we'll be talking more about the evidence for that in just a moment, but this study that is uh, going that I want to talk about has just completed its first twelve-month double-blind, and what they're doing in this is looking at about six hundred patients with people with Alzheimer's disease of the very mild variety through moderate disease, and so they had a uh, they use a PET scan, which is a type of uh, radioactive glucose CT scan that show that lights up in uh, areas, and they can use this to stain for this tau protein. When tau protein aggregates, it forms these things called neurofibrillary tangles, which are often found in the neurons of people with uh, Alzheimer's disease and also with Parkinson's disease. So they looked at the mini mental status score for the patient, and then they looked at how much decline they had. And what they found over the first 12 months of the study is that people who were on the higher dose, 16 milligrams a day, not that high, uh, did not decline. And the expected decline over 12 months in the untreated population would historically be about five units. in fact, when they looked at the uh, mild cognitive people, the people who were just mildly impaired, 
they did not just not decline. They actually improved by about two units over their uh, pre-treatment baseline, uh, a substantial improvement in the first six months. So this is really one of the first drugs that or agents that's ever been able to show a reversal of cognitive decline by this sort of testing. And I want to emphasize this this test the uh, the mental um, the mini mental status exam. This is a blunt instrument for evaluating cognition. So when they looked at the people who had already got mild to moderate. Uh, Alzheimer's disease and giving them the higher dose, they saw a, a small decline over the first nine months. And then they, over the next nine months, people seemed to stall and actually uh, decrease. So they actually improved or stayed stable for the second uh, six months. So that's really, really interesting and leads to the possibility that this may actually mean something. Now, those were the objective tests, the, you know, mini mental status, which is a questionnaire. When they looked at the MRI, the PET, excuse me, the PET scans, uh, they saw really strong evidence that brain atrophy did not occur in the high-risk groups and uh, both groups. So less loss of brain atrophy, which can be well-measured, less uh, deposition of the tau proteins. So pretty suggestive that there's you know something going on there and that the idea that misfolded proteins are a big cause of aging is a very legitimate idea i want you to think about you know a classic hoarder house where the corridors are full of newspapers and trash bags and stuff and the house is just full of unsorted objects some of it's debris, some of it might be useful someday if you fixed it, but for the most part, if it's clear that whoever is living in that house isn't using that stuff, they're maybe someday going to, or maybe they just can't bring themselves to part with it. Either way, it's getting in the way of the functionality of the house and the hallways and the, and the horizontal surfaces that you might otherwise use to prepare food or write something down on. This is a real metaphor for what's going on with these protein tangles and misfolding and aggregation of these proteins into clumps, dust bunnies, if you will, in the brain. So how strong is the evidence that tau protein might really be uh, the, the culprit here in Alzheimer's? Well, about 10 years ago, after a lot of unsuccessful work, you looking at amyloid beta, which is definitely, definitely shows up, uh, researchers are beginning to question it. Now, let's go back and do a, a little history lesson here. Uh, so we're talking about the late 19th century, when a doctor called, uh, named Alois Alzheimer recorded pre-senile dementia in Auguste Dite, who is a 51-year-old woman. She had delusions and short-term memory loss. She was only 51, and she was, her, she was, these are common things that we see in people who are in their 70s, but not people in their 50s. The patient herself said that she was losing herself, losing her identity. And of course, after she died, her uh, the doctor took her brain and uh, sliced it up and looked under a microscope and he saw these plaques, uh, these sort of flat places that weren't cellular, and these tangles. And he was the first person to associate these uh, plaques with Alzheimer's with a disease, and he basically named the disease and. Fast forward now to the 1930s when we are starting to understand genetics and uh, cases of autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease are becoming apparent. This is an early onset disease, which allows you to pick these people out in the population because they're getting it much younger than anybody gets, quote unquote, senile dementia. And it was found that it was inherited from uh, people with an abnormal gene. And so... 
you know, if if you got dementia before 65, this was considered pre-senile dementia. And it uh, was thought then to be a different disease. But then later on, uh, as we develop more and more knowledge of our uh, genetics and protein products, what was realized is that people who had the early autosomal dominant form of Alzheimer's actually have an abnormal gene for amyloid beta. And that discovery sort of solidified this amyloid beta is the culprit. But really, it's just as plausible that amyloid beta is the symptom. Now, another thing that led to support for this goes back to... uh, 1984, and this was when the amyloid beta protein was first isolated, and it was found in two types of individuals, individuals with Down syndrome and individuals with Alzheimer's disease, and they both contained amyloid beta, and so why would Down syndrome people have more of it? Well, amyloid beta is encoded in chromosome 21, and Down syndrome is a result of having three copies of chromosome 21. If you have three copies of the blueprint, apparently you make more uh, copies of the protein. Sort of makes sense. And this hypothesis basically, it made the mistake, possibly, of confounding causality with correlation. So we see that there's a correlation between developing dementia and brain problems, and we see this amyloid beta, but is the brain problem causing the amyloid beta? Well, this chain of events that we're talking about is also associated with hyperphosphorylated uh, tau proteins, which then attach to each other in tangles and snarl up and form neurofibrillary tangles. So which one is it? Well, one of the... Here's some data on the subject of maybe it's the amyloid. So we know that we, not the amyloid, rather, we know about the amyloid showing up, but uh, a new imaging study of 10 people with mild Alzheimer's disease, uh, and this was uh, published very recently. Let's see if I have the date. Uh, Yes, so October of this year. So what this study showed was... uh, the correlation between the severity of symptoms and the amount of tau is much stronger than the amount of uh, amyloid beta. In fact, we often find people who have a ton of amyloid beta in their brains, but no dementia at autopsy, which if amyloid beta were the culprit, that's certainly strong evidence against it. So again, using this positive emission tonography, you can look at amyloid beta deposits, but you can also look at tau protein deposits. And uh, when you do that, like I said, 30% of people without any sign of dementia have lots of amyloid beta as they get older, but they're fine. Hmm. On the other hand, if they have lots of tau protein, uh, they have lots of dementia. And if they don't have lots of tau protein, uh, especially tau protein in the temporal lobe, they uh, are fine. If they do have it there in the temporal lobe, they are generally quite impaired. So we're getting some evidence that tau may actually be uh, the horse and the amyloid beta may be the cart, if you'll forgive me for a rather clumsy metaphor. Most of the drugs that we've developed using uh, mice that were engineered to create, to mimic Alzheimer's disease, haven't worked when we put them in humans. Now, they probably would work in early onset Alzheimer's where the beta amyloid gene is flawed because that's what we made. This is our big cognitive error. We made a research structure. We spent millions of dollars barking up the wrong tree using an animal model which is not a model for the disease, not the disease we want to hit, which is the age-related Alzheimer's, because we're heading for a real cognitive cliff across much of the developed world as people get older and more and more people have Alzheimer's. Uh, There was even a vaccine against uh, amyloid beta that uh, 
was pulled because a whole bunch of people got inflammation of their brains and it it didn't work because they were targeting the wrong uh, biomarker. Now, it's probably true that preventing aggregation of tau is possible with therapeutic agents. And so that's why this uh, drug that I was talking about that's in the stage three, the hydromethylthionine methylate, HTM, uh, HMTM, is so promising as really being something that might unravel, if you'll, well, unravel the tangles and unravel us from the tangle we've created with our inappropriate research model. One of the reasons that this makes a lot of sense is because the newspaper's in the hallway, right? The neurons have to send information down synapses. And we are now finding that these neurofibrillary uh, tangles slow down the uh, propagation of information in a single neuron and also that they inhibit the formation of new dendrites, which is, of course, how we manage to remember things is by forming literally new roots and branches in our uh, neuronal tree structure. So interesting information and wrapping up the idea that maybe by reducing inflammation and by increasing blood flow and by increasing detoxification, we can really turn around uh, the trends of our own deterioration. And obviously, as I get older and older, I become more and more interested in slowing my own deterioration. So our next email is an anonymous one uh, from Santa Cruz. UV air purifiers. Hi, Dr. Don. A few years back when COVID was starting to surge, you talked about air purifiers that also have UV light to kill viruses and other pathogens. I believe you said you had one in your office. Later on another show, I believe I thought I heard you say UV is dangerous and not to be in the same room when it's in use. Being that COVID and other pathogens seem to be on the rise again, I'm thinking about buying one for either my office or my home. I'm wondering how you use it, given what you said. Uh, Do you turn it on in between patients and leave the room? Thank you for all you bring to us. Well, Anonymous, first of all, just like sunlight, uh, ultraviolet is a type of radiation that travels in a straight line, and it doesn't penetrate objects. So anything that will block light will block UV. And that's a super important thing to understand because when we think about a UV air purifier, what it's doing is pulling air into a chamber, which is shielded, right? You don't see the UV light. One of the major ways it damages you is through this back of your eyeball, your retina. It's very sensitive to ultraviolet radiation and can be permanently damaged by exposure to UV. That's why, for example, if you go to the dentist and they use a uh, a resin that's cured by UV, they'll put a little pair of goggles on you that block UV light. So there are also UV sterilizers for medical instruments and things like that. And some of those do leak light. And those are the things that we would turn on and then leave the room or turn on in a closet or have them cycle through as uh, after a timer goes off in the middle of the night. And so that's the answer to your query about ultraviolet light. Okay, so this from Sybil in Soquel. Uh, Dear Dr. Don, in a podcast I heard, I was surprised that you were using sugar in your tea. I wasn't clear about what you said about stevia. Personally, I don't use stevia. I use monk fruit. And I remember you saying that that's what you're using as well. Is there something wrong with monk fruit now? I'm a bit confused. Also, is our lecithin granules good or not so good supplement to take for brain health? I'll start with Sybil's second question first. Lecithin is a inexpensive, good source of choline. And choline is important for forming the walls of brain cells. Uh, it's usually in brain cells in the form of phosphatidylcholine, and you can actually purchase that at a health food store. You can also purchase choline 
or you can buy lecithin granules. It's usually egg lecithin. And these are effectively very good substances for supporting brain health. I would not classify them as cognitive enhancers. I would classify them as uh, preser- uh, as nutritional and preservational in their uh, activity. Now, with respect to the sugar in my tea, possibly you were catching that from my talking about the five-carbon sugar ribose and how I will sometimes use that for my workouts in tea. Uh, the artificial sweeteners I've talked about in a recent podcast were also a possibility. And in that podcast, I talked about how there had been research showing that uh, equal uh, saccharin and sucrophate, uh, all artificial non-nutritive sweeteners, had the effect of getting the microbiome to behave exactly the same way as it behaves when it encounters sugar, arguing that they could be used by the microbiome or that they could, the microbiome could misinterpret their signals and that they all led to a certain amount of insulin resistance uh, over time. And so that was what that uh, research was about. Stevia was the one thing they studied in there that did not do that. And there are stevia products and stevia and monk fruit products and monk fruit products alone. Uh, monk fruit has an interesting property. It makes things taste sweet, although it's non-nutritive. I apparently do not have the right receptors on my tongue, just like some people's urine smells funny when they eat asparagus and other people uh, don't convert the compound in asparagus into whatever it is that stinks up the bathroom, uh, just like some people can taste bitter very uh, very readily and some people can't. Uh, I think in my case, monk fruit simply does not taste sweet to me, and so therefore I don't use it. But I've never seen anything, Sybil, to suggest that there's anything wrong with it. All right. Uh, Last email. This is from Bart in Southern California, macular degeneration. Uh, Hi, Dr. Don. Just wondering what your thoughts are about the AREDS2 formula. That's A-R-E-D-S. Uh, two uh, formula. Uh, the zinc seems high. Also, I think you've said copper should be about 10% of the zinc dosage. What other supplements do you think people could add for macular degeneration? So first of all, for the audience, there was a study done easily a decade ago called the AREDS. And I know that part of that was uh, retinal epithelial degeneration. I don't remember what the rest of the acronym stands for. And they were looking at macular degeneration, which is a disease of the retina where the macula, uh, which is the part of the retina that has the highest density of receptors, therefore it gets the most oxidative stress because it's the hot spot. If you've ever set fire to a piece of paper with a magnifying lens, then you know what I'm talking about. You concentrate the rays onto a single point and the smoke starts to rise. Well, that is the area where, of course, your vision is the clearest, the macula. So it's in that area that oxidative stress takes its greatest toll. And when we age, mac- our maculas can degenerate and we'll go from 2020 to 2050 to 2200. But this is not correctable with lenses because it's not—it's a loss of receptors. Uh, so it's pixel dropout, if you will. And that's not something that you can fix with a better magnifying lens. So we want to prevent macular degeneration. And this study, the AREDS2 study, looked at what substances were associated. They used epidemiological data, and they essentially ended up with a bunch of antioxidants, including two carotenoids, which are, you know what chlorophyll is, well, Carotenoids are the orange and red colored things and also some yellow colored things that you see in other plants. And the carotenoids also are act as antioxidants in mammals uh, by by grabbing those oxygen-free radicals and absorbing them. So uh, 
zeaxanthin, which is the thing that the makes flamingos pink, is a very good carotenoid for the eyeball. Uh, lutein is another useful one that's found in cooked tomatoes and also has some some evidence that it's helpful for prevention of prostate disease, specifically prostate cancer. Uh, copper and zinc. The zinc is 40 milligrams. That's uh, about 300% of your minimum daily minimum requirement. Uh, and uh, what else? Vitamin E uh, at 6 at 90 milligrams, vitamin C at 250 milligrams. And so what other supplements? These are the ones that have the best science behind them. Uh, I think that using a good fish oil supplement in general helps support your mucous membranes, excuse me, your cellular membranes. And those cell membranes, of course, are what we worry about in nerves. So that probably also supports the eyeball. Vitamin A is another one that I recommend for eye health. And vitamin A, of course, is derived from the carotenoid beta carotene. So the connection there again between those valuable antioxidants. But vitamin A gets turned into rhodopsin, which is one of the major pigments that absorbs photons and allows you to take a photon out of the air and materialize it into a nerve cell impulse uh, by transducing it in the retina. So, of course, those photons are little hot potatoes and generate some electrons and some redox reactions, so you want those free radical sinks around. As far as the ratio of zinc to copper, the main concern we have is not too much zinc, but too much copper. And so sometimes people are getting more copy, copper than they should. And that's why uh, the, the maximum copper to zinc ratio uh, that I talked about uh, being 10%. So in this case, the copper is low, not too high. So there's no concern. And that can be a problem if people are taking copper supplements or cooking a lot of things in copper pans. Uh, copper pipes, maybe there you, people can get copper toxic, and that is associated with uh, some forms of Alzheimer's uh, aggravation, some forms of dementia. So, very indirect evidence, more of that correlation uh, rather than causation. So hard to tell whether it's really meaningful, but nevertheless creepy enough to make you want to avoid copper toxicity. And that's it for emails got enough time, I think, to launch into the program, I've, the information I've prepared about fatty liver disease. So let's talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Everyone associates liver disease with uh, cirrhosis, right? Cirrhosis of the liver, drinking too much and the alcohol is toxic, it's broken down, it becomes acetaldehyde, and that damages the liver, and eventually the liver scars up and doesn't work anymore as a filter. Stuff backs up, you get varicose veins in your esophagus, plus you can't move toxins from the gut through the liver and detoxify them, so you start to get um, a little weird. Ammonia levels go up, that affects brain functioning, and you get delirious, and that's your classic, uh, that's your classic death of cirrhosis right there. But people can also get cirrhosis and liver inflammation and liver scarring from too much fat depositing. And fatty, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it's, it's like that classic movie trope where someone is concentrating on something else and they're hit by a rapidly moving car coming from 90 degrees opposite from where they're looking. Bam! Houston, we have a problem. UCLA Health estimates the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to be about 25 to 35% of the U.S. adult population. That, my friends, is because of our obesity, a major risk factor for that. Ultimately, as I said, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can lead to cirrhosis and liver failure. And in fact, NAFLD is on track to become 
the number one cause of liver transplant in the United States in the next decade, superseding hepatitis C, because guess what? We figured out how to get how to eradicate hepatitis C in the liver, but we're still stuck with this new and emerging disease. So the first step, if you're concerned, if you're overweight, if you're diabetic, or if you have insulin resistance or prediabetes, might be to see if you have uh, to look at something called the FLI, the fatty liver index. And so it's a, it's a calculation, basically involves your waist measurement, your body mass index, your triglycerides, and your gamma glutal transferase, which is one of the liver enzymes. Um, and so the gamma glutamyl transferase and the triglycerides all get plugged into this formula. So if you want to calculate it for yourself, go to mdapp.com and search for the FLI. And you can plug in your data in kilograms and you'll get your FLI. And uh, if it's elevated, then you need an ultrasound. So if your FLI is high, you're going to want something called a fibroscan. It's a type, a, it's a, and just a regular ultrasound will detect advanced cases, but something called transient elastography is the gold standard. It's replacing liver biopsy because it tells you whether or not there's scarring. So who's at risk and how can you get in early to back it off? Well, first of all, uh, if you're obese, if you have insulin resistance, diabetes, high cholesterol, high lipids, and hypertension, and cardiovascular disease, all of these people have an increased risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's because high levels of insulin impair fatty metabolism. Your, bo- your body can't burn fat normally, so it has to do something about it, and it stashes it in the liver. Now, also, high levels of insulin create oxidative stress. Oxidative stress, those free oxygen radicals running around, damage tissue. Tissue damage causes inflammation. Inflammation can lead to cell loss and scar tissue formation. And we're off to the races with sterosis. So lifestyle modification and uh, weight loss are very very effective. But there's also a lot of herbal medications that have real potential, and many of these are derived from Chinese medicine. Uh, There are essentially many stages in physiology as we break down glucose and we break down fats, where the balance of different enzymes and the activation of certain pathways is extremely important. So one of the most uh, potent anti-liver damage uh, treatments in early stage uh, fatty liver disease is actually a Korean red ginseng, which is a widely available supplement and actually not super expensive. So that is something to be thinking about if you are identified as having this. Uh, The mitochondria are also very uh, protected by this compound. And you can do a lot with this one supplement, the Korean red ginseng, in terms of protecting your liver. I was quite impressed with the data here. And so I wanted to be sure I uh, passed that on. There are a number of single nutrients, and of these, probably the most uh, powerful one is actually curcumin, which is uh, found in turmeric. It's a natural polyphenol, and it's available in a variety of levels. And another one that has shown real promise is cinnamon, so I'm thinking, hmm, foods, right? We could do supplements, but if we're if we're doing our lifestyle modification and trying to stay natural, a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon 
in a uh, in a soup with turmeric and pepper. Uh, maybe throw in a little ginger for its strong antioxidant properties, and have a glass of that with dinner. That's starting to sound like a natural medicine. Uh, another study that uh, looking for protective agents was uh, silly marin, which is milk thistle, and has widely been used in cases of mushroom toxicity and for the prevention of progression of cirrhosis in alcoholic liver disease. And people with non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis, an eponym for, uh, sorry, a synonym for this alcoholic liver disease, also do extremely well with silly marin. Doses on that, about 300 milligrams. Uh, let's talk about, in the last couple of minutes, light therapy for cancer. Now, scientists have been having a hard time excising cancers in the brain because it's hard to get in there without damaging a whole bunch of things on your way in. Uh, new researchers have developed a promising new treatment that uses photoimmunotherapy to identify and destroy uh, even microscopic cancer cells. These are synthetic molecules that targets a protein that is usually mutated in cases of the brain cancer glioblastoma. This is one of the most common and one of the most lethal forms of uh, malignant brain cancer. These molecules uh, glow when exposed to normal light, but more importantly, when you expose them to near-infrared light, that is to say a heat lamp, they trigger an anti-tumor activity locally. So they have essentially, a, they're a light-triggered uh, toxin for cancer, and they seek out cancer in a directed fashion. Uh, they also found that these compounds helped trigger an immune response that, at least in the animal studies they were doing, uh, seemed to help the immune system identify and attack the cancer is more readily. So still very preliminary information, but very, very exciting. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.